Well, hi folks. Welcome back to Naturally Adventurous. Um, this week, I'm on my own. Well, I'm without Charlie, but I'm joined by a special guest, which is my friend uh, Dorian Anderson. Dorian and I have been talking about doing a podcast for a while, and we, we finally made it happen here in the, the holiday season. I'm really excited to finally chat, Dorian, and finally have you on uh, Naturally Adventurous. So, welcome. Yeah, it's great to be here. And one thing that Ken didn't mention is for the last three years, we we have been co-workers because I have been guiding for tropical birding since, I guess, the end of 2020. So it's been fun to share the guiding experience. I mean, Ken is, Ken is a seasoned, grizzled veteran <laughs> at, at this stage. Quite, quite grizzled. So it's, uh, I'm, I'm constantly like, Ken, I have a problem. And he's like, okay, let's, let's figure this out. So it's been, it's been a lot of fun, uh, Ken kind of guiding me as a, as a, as an up-and-coming guide, so to speak. So friends and co-workers at the moment. Absolutely. Well, we were just both in Namibia a couple months ago. That's right. And uh, communicating about all kinds of things. I was giving you Jen, and then you had done the trip prior to me, so you were sending me uh, information, and that, that's always fun. Ironically, we were there at the same time, and I think there was one morning when I must have driven by you in the other direction, and I was oh, watching for you. But I, I never saw you, so that's the closest we came to actually meeting in Namibia. But, uh, but yeah, you know, I was just in Southern California for the first time. Oh, that's right. A few weeks ago, and Dorian gave me a whole bunch of great information, recommendations about how to maximize my time around LA. Which, so yeah, it's it's actually a really cool thing about being part of this community of guides, and especially tropical birding. I think everybody's really good at sharing info. So mm-hmm. yeah, really happy to have you as part of the team. But yeah, so I haven't really properly introduced you for people who don't know. I mean, a lot of people probably do, but Dorian did a bicycle carbon-free lower 48 United States big year back in 2014. Well, I just read the book. So so you it was a while ago, but you have just published a book. That's right. Um, like a travel log about your adventure and just kind of weaving it together with where you were in life at that point and your relationship with your now wife. Right? Uh-huh. Um, and I just read the book. You um, you sent me a copy of the book. I just finished reading it. Really, really enjoyed it. So the focus of our podcast today, we could talk about all kinds of things, um, but we're, we're really going to talk about your big year, your bicycle big year, and your book. Yeah, because I th- you've just released the book, and uh, yeah, I was I was quite uh, excited to read it. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a long time in the making. I think that uh, a lot of people do big years, and I mean, I think a book is a natural extension of that, irrespective of whether you use planes, trains, and automobiles, or in my case, the bicycle. Uh, there's it's an amazing adventure, no matter how it's powered, and there's certainly an appetite in the community uh, to kind of live vicariously through through the select handful or two handfuls of folks who get to go and do these things uh, for various reasons. Uh, so I kind of had the idea of writing a book for a while, but there were some things kind of after I got off the bike that got in the way of that. And it took a long time. Uh, the other thing is, is that I, I'm a scientist by training and you'll get a lot of this in the book, but I, I left a still relatively promising scientific career. I was a postdoctoral fellow in molecular neuroscience at Mass General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Um, and so all of my training was how to can how to communicate information as clearly and concisely and with as little emotion as possible. And I didn't take <laughs> yeah. I didn't take English in college. I didn't take creative writing in college. I took science and I took math, and that was it. And so learning how to write dialogue, learning how to write uh, 
uh, write characters, learning how to build tension, learning how to develop a narrative. Like these are things that I had to learn and it took a long time. So this is why there's this huge lag between I see. when I did this adventure in 2014 and the publication of the book, because I had to fumble around and learn it all from the ground up. None of my friends are writers. They're all doctors and scientists and so on and so forth. Right. So yeah, peer, it, they, they can peer review your book, but uh, right, yeah. right, exactly. So it was, it took a long time to, to do this, but I, I'm really happy with the result. And I think that, as you said, I think it, it touches on a, a lot of different, a lot of different themes. And I think that that was what the writing process was, is I could kind of visualize the puzzle pieces, but it took a long time to, to kind of craft each piece properly. And then fit it into the the picture that is the narrative so it was it was a really at times soul crushing exercise but really rewarding now that it's done well i have to say i didn't know what to expect you know i uh were were friends and i was wanting your book to be really good but there are, are times when like somebody you know has written a book and it's just honestly not that good mm -hmm. your book is really good it's a really compelling read it's well written. It it holds together. It has a lot of of virtues. You know George Armistead, who's a mutual friend, who's been on our, the Naturally Adventurous podcast as well. I think there is there's a review from him on the cover, and he compares your book with like Pete Dunne's Feather Quest or Roger Tory Peterson's Wild America. And uh, you know I would throw Kingbird Highway, Ken Kaufman's Kingbird Highway, into that mix, but I do think it belongs in that vein of books that are kind of are they're about birding quests but they're about more than that as well like they're sort of travel logs and adventures in their own right mm -hmm. and i think your book belongs in that vein it's it's really really cool new entrant into that that category and i, I really hope I, I certainly recommend that people read it it's just a really really good really compelling book so my idea, I have a few questions about the the writing process, which you referenced. Yeah. I'm, before we get into that, I'm, I think I should just give people a few details about the big year. And then I have a few questions about the actual bicycle big year. And then Definitely. we can switch to book mode. This was 2014. You rode 17,800 miles on your bicycle. <laughs> uh, basically starting, it was what, Massachusetts to Florida, to Texas, to Arizona, up into the Rocky Mountains, the the Intermountain West, and then over to the West Coast to Washington, and then all the way down to Southern California, and then back to Texas. Is yes. That, uh, good yeah, summary? that's a perfect summary, exactly. And, and there was so, lots, lots of twists and turns and backtracking and getting right, lost right. and so forth in like there. <laughs> the most efficient route along that uh, general... Right. Yeah, so you saw 618 species, which was quite a few more. You, you thought that six or like right around 600 was your best case scenario right exactly so yeah i mean quite i a bit better than anticipated and there was no benchmark for this i think that that's the thing that people need to understand is that in a normal big year you know that if you throw a hundred thousand dollars at it you can get 750 species and you probably don't even need to throw a hundred thousand dollars to get 750 now the way that the there's so many more people birding and there's so much more dissemination of information. But if you throw a certain amount of money at it, and it's that's all it is. It's like there's an equation. If you throw this many dollars, you'll get this many species. If you throw this many dollars, you'll get this many species. But there was no benchmark for this with bikes. There was like right. no idea. And Uncharted so, territory. Right. I kind of had to guess. I was like, 
Uh, originally, I wasn't going to go to the Northeast, but, uh, and I saw that the species total, I was like, maybe I can get 580 if I like start in the Carolinas. So I avoid the Northeastern winter and go South America. But like, who, who wants to aim for 580 species? And once I realized if I threw the Northeast in, I could get things, a lot of Northern birds like snowy owl and common eider and so on and so forth that then I'd have a shot at 600, but I had, I had no idea if it was doable. I mean, in a big year, you, like a normal one, you can calculate based on how fast your bank account is going <laughs> to crash. Deplete, right. But I, I didn't know how my legs would hold up. I had no idea. Like it was completely a complete kind of like, let's just see what the hell happens. <laughs> Fortunately, it worked. It is a pretty crazy concept. You know, when I got into the headspace of doing something like this, reading your book, the thing that really intimidates me is just the idea of spending that much time on roads in the States, uh-huh. so often narrow roads, <laughs> yeah. roads where people are not very conscious of the presence of bicycles or sympathetic. Right. That, I mean, and I think that this comes through in the book as well, like that sounds really dangerous, just fraught with, with potential problems. And so I guess my first question is, was that actually fun? Because when I think about doing that, the birding and the travel and a lot of, you know, even the exercise aspect sounds really fun. The always fearing for your life next to a busy highway in America, that doesn't sound fun to me. So like, how did you deal with that? Yeah, this was, I mean, this is something I had to think a lot about ahead of time. And specifically because I had, I had a significant other who had skin in the game. Like, I think that you go on a normal big year or petroleum powered big year, you're coming back. I mean, right. it, you're right. coming back. Right. And there was a pretty good chance, a, a decent chance, a chance that, I mean, I had, I took out a catastrophic life insurance policy so that if mm-hmm. I was strong, like, I had to think about these things that if I was run down and ended up paralyzed and had to buy a one floor house and modify everything in it, like I had to think about this stuff ahead of time. Uh, so I was acutely aware of these, of these risks. Um, but I write about this. You just, you, I had to find a way to forget about them. And, and honestly, the, on a lot of days, the pain of riding the bicycle was enough to make me forget about those risks, uh, especially when it was really cold or really hot or really windy or really hilly or really bumpy. Like there was enough <laughs> misery was coming at me from all directions on many days. And so my safety wasn't necessarily my top concern. Um, the other thing is, is that uh, I ended up riding a lot of roads that, quite frankly, I had, I or any other cyclist had no business riding simply because expediency was a constant consideration for me. I yeah. could have, I could have ridden bike paths and I could have ridden back roads, but it would have lengthened my transit and thereby slowed me down and, and shifted my pace. Um, but I rode Highway 17 through the Carolinas, which is a state highway, but it's busy. It has some lights here and there, but it was like that was really. That was a tough ride because not only is there not a lot of shoulder, but for whatever reason in the South, uh, a lot of folks just derive a a sick sort of delight from harassing cyclists. It was the only place in the country where I had debris thrown at me from moving cars, uh, insults shouted out windows, uh, constant honking, uh, constant close quarters when there's clearly more space available to the vehicle's left because I would be on their right. So... Yeah, it was tough, but I just, I got into a position where I was, I was observant. The other thing that I didn't listen to music or anything while I was riding, uh, 
there's pragmatic concerns of hearing birds, but I also wanted to know where I was kind of in the traffic landscape and he, hearing was really important. Um, sure. You know, I honestly feel like being a cyclist has made me a, a much better driver because I'm, I'm constantly aware of, okay, there's that car back there and there's this car over there. And, and I do that when I'm driving too. So you get used to it, but you kind of have to put it out of mind or you're just, or you'll drive yourself crazy and make yourself miserable. Uh, as I said, on a lot of days, the riding, the physical part of it was, was so challenging that the safety was like, oh, it wasn't in my head. I'm just like, I just want to get where I'm going. Um, but it, I mean, that's a totally different slant to the big year where you have this, this safety component, which is something that isn't traditionally associated with big years. No. So, I mean, there's the, the macro safety concerns where you're like, okay, I might not come back from this or the, you know, the chances of being hit on 365 days on the road in, on a bike is pretty high mm -hmm. and you could just get stuck on the worry of that. And I, I can see how just the, the grinding physical nature of some days would get you beyond that. But then you still have to kind of tune in to just the, the micro dangers, right? That just you, you would constantly have to be aware of like this vehicle sounds like it's coming really fast. And I wonder if this person's aware and, and that sort of thing. And I'm sure you'd never let your guard down for those sorts of things. It was hard. Yeah. The other thing is, is that there were the always unexpected things. So like you hit a pothole in your car, like the worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to get a flat tire, even if it's like a monster pothole. But if I hit a pothole on my bike, I can get thrown from the bike and then run over by a car. Uh, so I had to be constantly vigilant. There was an episode in Arizona where I had been on bumpy roads, bumpy dirt roads all morning, and I finally got onto a paved road. And so when you're riding a bumpy dirt road, not only can you not hear anything, but you're kind of looking at the road, making sure you don't hit rocks and ruts and holes and so on and so forth. So as soon as I hit the paved road, I picked my eyes up and started looking around, thinking, oh, I'm in the clear. And not 30 seconds after being on the paved road, I came within like a foot of rolling over a rattlesnake that like lunged, <laughs> that like lunged at my foot as I went by. Um, so like there was danger everywhere. Little things like insects. Um, I got hit in the face by insects a couple times. And so when you're riding at 15, 20 miles an hour and an insect, which is flying at another 10 or 15 hits you, it's like getting shot in the face with a BB gun. And so it's like, oh, there's this recoil. And if you recoil too much when that happens and there's a car to your left, then all of a sudden you're run over. So there's all these little things that like you just don't even have to worry about when you're in a car that I had to – some of them I could prepare for. Like I could be vigilant and look for potholes and look for ruts and so on and so forth. But like bees hitting me in the face was something that – I could do all the preparation in the world and I, you can't see it coming. It just happens, you know. Uh, so there were just a lot of a lot of potential pitfalls along the way. Yeah, no kidding. And I guess that's part of what was – satisfying about having done it is that you just overcame a lot a lot of you know things you could not have imagined it's almost this leap of faith of just saying i'm gonna try this thing and see right. how how it comes out right and i think i think it was it was my then girlfriend now wife who who helped me help me realize that like i i was a scientist and as a as an experimentalist, the whole goal is to have your experiment so perfectly controlled that any deviation from that control in the experimental condition is is measurable and then hopefully repeatable and, and hopefully then significant. And so like the lab in, was a closed system and I, I could manipulate it to, to whatever end I needed, but the open road was an open system. And so I had to go out there with, with a trust that I'm not sure I had on my own, that my wife kind of had to help impart on me. 
Uh, and I think that's a big thing is, is that I, I had had this like linear vision of what I wanted from my life kind of professionally. Um, and I, I, I kind of had this, this tunnel vision as I was going to get it. But as that vision kind of crumbled for reasons that, that I explained in the book, like I had to get a bit more creative. And I think that, I think that going and like doing something totally different, like I thought about driving around, but it, it just, the bike is what really made it interesting. And I think that that challenge and that novelty and the lack of comparison being that nobody had done it before kind of allowed me to define success however I wanted to. Some days that was seeing a hundred species of birds. Other days that was like, I didn't get run over. Uh, so I think that, I think that just like having that kind of blind faith, uh, just kind of set a course that I think was really different and unusual and, and I know was rewarding. Like I won't say that my, my big year was more rewarding than another big, than any other big year, but I will say that there were a lot of challenges that I had to overcome that, that helped shape what I do with my life now and, and how I perceive the world now that I, I don't think I would have experienced had I, had I flown and driven around. So I'm keen to get into some of the nitty gritty of yeah. how this worked because reading the book, well, do you want to hear my biggest criticism of the book? Yeah, please. It's too short. <laughs> Actually, I wanted, I wanted more. Like I was sad when it was over and it let, it was a really good tale, but it left me with a lot of questions. So, but fortunately I know you and we're doing this podcast. Uh -huh. so I can, I can get into some of these questions, but yeah. Yeah, I was I was actually wanting wanting more. You know, maybe you can do a a tenth anniversary extended edition or something, and like beef it up because I really would have been happy to hear more about uh, certain sectors of the trip. And... It's it's so funny because this is something that, like, I, I, the editing process, and this will kind of dovetail some of the writing stuff that we'll do later. I originally wrote the book, and it was like nine, the draft that I sent the the. In it was about my final version is about ninety five thousand words, and the printed final version that you read is about eighty five thousand. So I lost more than ten percent of of what was in there. Some of that stuff was peripheral in terms of it was really painful to let it go because it's not like a book on mushrooms, right? Like I'm not writing a book on mushrooms. So if we cut mushroom Y out of the out of the book, did it? You take it that personally, but when there were these personal anecdotes, because it's a memoir that were cut, I was like, "God, why does this have to go?" Right. Um, but I think that what I've come to learn about writing through this process is that it's better to leave your reader wanting more mm. than your reader slogging through things and like breathing a sigh of relief at the end. Um, there's a lot of good stuff that got left out. Not only is stuff that happened on the road, but some stuff that happened in my personal backstory. Uh, so yeah, I totally hear you. I mean, I, I there's stuff that I'm, I'm missing in there, but at the same time, the number of people who are like, I sat down and I read this book cover to cover in two days. Uh, I think that I think that like I had to trust my editor. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I think and, you guys, you you probably made the right call and. I think you're exactly right. It's better to leave people wanting more than than them thinking, well, this book could have been 40% shorter. I read a lot of books that are like that. So I, I think you did well. If you started messing with that formula, you know, maybe it wouldn't be as gripping. Maybe people wouldn't sit down and read it cover to cover. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it's not really a criticism, but it, it does. <laughs> yeah, that's that's my biggest criticism. Yeah, like, ah, and, I, and, I, and I totally hear that. Like, I think that there, there are, 
there are day there are certain days when I think that like more details of the riding, more details of what I saw. Uh, I mean, even some of the people that I met on the road, I had to cut. Like I had some amazing. Like the one thing that somebody said to me, this guy Tim, who actually invited me to the University of Michigan to give a talk uh, to their honors program. He's like, I just think it would be interesting for the kids to hear your story. And this was like. Not long after I got off the bike, maybe a year afterwards, but I went out to dinner with him and he said something that has stuck with me to this day. And that is your book is only as good as the last thing that you leave out. And that really resonated because I think that mm. if you're if you're sitting there and you're cutting things out that you're like, damn, this is so good. Oh, I can't believe I have to leave this out. It means that everything that's left is better. And that's something that it really, really stuck with me that as painful as it was to, to omit some sections, especially the stuff that I'd written already, the, the decision not to write about something is, is, is painful to spend time to have written about something and then have it cut after the fact is even more painful. But in letting those things go, it meant that the body that remained was that much better. So that's something that I, if I have a piece of advice for other writers, that's something that I would pass on is that your book is only as good as the last thing that you cut. Yeah, I really like that, and it strikes me that it probably applies to podcasting as well. <laughs> I mean, if if you're basically scraping the bottom of the barrel and you're trying, to, you're racking your brain for some kind of interesting story, or or to try to turn something that happened while you traveled into an interesting story, you probably don't have enough material. But if mm -hmm. there are just like dozens of things you could have talked about and good stories and things that happened that you're not even sharing, then that means you sort of have a rich vein of stuff mm -hmm. to share. So, it's a yeah, it's a bit like being a guide. Like I think that the number one problem a guide can create for uh, themselves is over promising and under delivering. Uh, Hundred percent. Right? right. Whereas it's so much better to under promise and over deliver. <laughs> so it's kind Absolutely. of the same kind of thing in writing. It's it's like a guiding mantra for me. Right. I don't know if we should make this public, but oh well, too late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, let me dive into some of these details. Yeah. I'm, I'm just very curious about this stuff. I hope other people will be interested too. If some of this stuff doesn't seem relevant, just go read Dorian's book and then you'll re-listen to this podcast and you'll thank me for asking these questions. So, yeah, one thing that I'm curious about is, did you camp at all? And when you thought about your overall methodology, did you think about camping? Was there a reason if you didn't camp, was there a reason you decided not to? Yeah. So this is, there were a couple of reasons. One is that I was already carrying an inordinate amount of gear. I was carrying telescope, tripod, laptop, charger, camera, 400 millimeter lens, 17 to 40 landscape lens, hiking boots, spare food, canned stuff in case I got stuck on the side of the road, uh, up to five quarts of water. So my kit was getting heavy really, really fast. Uh, so adding camping gear would have, would have added another, I don't know, 15 minimum, 20 pounds. Yep. The, other, the other problem is that I was riding so much that I would have had to carry so much food that uh, that would have slowed me down. So the physical limitations of how much to carry was one issue. Uh, another issue was that I was starting in the Northeast and I knew I wouldn't be doing any camping for about the first six weeks because it was going to be simply too cold. Um, a third reason was that a lot of this trip was conceived around kind of what I will say taking America's temperature, um, I really wanted to stay with people. Um, hmm. 
and and meet people along the road. Uh, there are several websites which I used, Warm Showers being the first and foremost where I could connect with other cyclists who are willing to host me as I moved around. But I, I really wanted to kind of bounce ideas off of people, hear how they had how they had kind of navigated life because I was going through this confused period in my own life and and while sitting in a tent would have been would have been time for reflection. I'll tell you, I had a ton of time for reflection while I was pedaling, <laughs> yeah, while I was pedaling the bike. Um, so those were the two big reasons that I, I wanted to like foment personal interaction uh, and the gear would have been too heavy. I did end up camping a couple times and that was mainly when local folks out of the generosity of their own hearts decided, hey, you know what, like I'll come meet you at this spot. We can camp there. That'll save you having to ride like 40 miles in the opposite direction to go find some, uh, to go find a motel or something. Um, so I did a bit of camping in Colorado. I camped a couple of times, once out at Pawnee National Grasslands, which I don't write about, once near Guanella Pass above Georgetown, which I do write about. Uh, my wife, actually, my then girlfriend, now wife, Sonia, I'll just keep I'll call her Sonia from here on out. She spent the year nomading on her own and at periods we would intersect and she had our tent with us. So there were a couple times that we camped together. Um, I carried all my own weight on those days. So I didn't like unload my bag and put it into her car. I was like, even though you're here, I want to push all the same pounds and I'm pushing every other right. day. So I, uh, I camped with Ron Beck at one point in, in Arizona. So I probably camped like, I don't know, nine or 10 nights, maybe 10 or 12 through the year. But I did not carry camping gear for the weight reasons and because I, I really wanted to stay with people. How did you charge your phone? It, it strikes me that there would have been a ton of, of navigation necessary. I assume you were e-birding as well. That's and, your big mistake. I was not e-birding. Okay. Um, well, I was going to ask about this. It was 2014. Right. So e-bird was still relatively right. not used that much, right? Yeah. And I have, uh, I have very specific answers to this as well. Uh, okay. One. <laughs> one is, the main answer is that e-bird came out... Uh, Try to go through the time too. eBird was uh, was up and running by the time I went out on this adventure. Uh, my problem was is that for the basically for the fifteen years before I took off on the bike, I was a scientist, and so I spent my entire day collecting data, mm -hmm. oftentimes at huge emotional expense of of just the ups and downs of of, of academic science. It's it's an incredibly challenging, tedious. Uh, lifestyle. And it's not a job, it's a lifestyle because you sleep in the lab and you're there all the time. Uh, so as, as my birding interest reemerged when I got sober at age 30, like eBird was out there in, in, the, in the birding sphere, but I never gravitated towards it for the simple reason I did not want my reignited birding passion to center on data collection. When I was outside of the lab, I wanted to be enjoying birds. I wanted to be photographing birds. I did not want to be collecting data. And that is one of the biggest regrets I have about that period of my life and about my big year is that I didn't eBird it because <laughs> eBird is, yes, it's about data, but selfishly, it's about your county lists and your state lists and coloring in the eBird map and, and having your entire birding history in one central area. And so I actually started eBirding right at the end of my big year when there were fewer species to find, when I wasn't juggling as many daily demands. Uh, I had mastered everything there was to master about navigating and cycling and how to find lodging and so on and so forth. So I started e-birding right at the end of my big year and it has been like as addictive as cocaine since then. I probably spend more time on e-bird than I do on any other site. Uh, so 
The other thing is that as an alcoholic addict, as somebody who gets like totally wrapped up in things, I'm actually glad I didn't, I am glad that I didn't eBird while I was biking because I would have been like, oh, this would be new for my Georgia state list. And I right. could have gotten dis- diverted, distracted from the overall like kind of goal, which was the, the lower 48, like big year. Right of of the cumulative list versus the individual county list, I would have been like, oh, you know what? Let me just detour five miles this way. I can yep. clip that county and eBird from that county. So I, <laughs> while I regret not eBirding the trip, I don't regret uh, I don't regret the potential pitfalls that would have created for myself. So given that I wasn't eBirding, I wasn't using my phone for anything but navigation, um, and in most places. I didn't need to charge my phone because it was ride highway 17 for 1400 miles. And so it was just, I didn't need to. The the biggest place where charging became an issue was in like urban environments where I'd have to ride three blocks and then turn left and ride four blocks and turn right. But that usually didn't last for more than even two hours at a hit. Uh, When I was out on the open road, I could, I could turn, if it says, I'm on a road for 25 miles. Uh, I know that it's going to take me an hour and a half to ride that. Um, and so I could turn the GPS off, which would save a ton of right. bat- battery power. So I, I originally was like, you know what, eventually, and at the outset, it was so cold, I couldn't be outside for very long. I wasn't riding very far, but I said, you know what, if I get to the point where my phone is draining, as I get out west, I can get one of these dynamo hubs that like siphons off a little bit of friction to off of your wheel to power your phone or I can get a solar charger. But once I got out there, I didn't need the the directions and the GPS as much because like I said, it was riding one road for 150 miles or whatever. So uh, the electricity really wasn't an issue. And I, the other thing is since I wasn't camping, as you asked before, I could charge all my stuff up when I was staying with people every night, basically. every night. Right. So I charged yeah, yeah. everything up. So that was, that's your, a very long winded answer to your charging question and the, an explanation as to why I didn't eBird which I, I would have loved to have done, but it would have, it would have created other headaches for me. How hard would it be to do what you did without a smartphone with a nav app? It, you could do it. Uh, and people have, I don't know if people have done quite the same. A lot of people ride across the country and they're these like prefabricated routes, like the Northern tier and the Southern tier, which are kind of mapped out for you. And you can actually order a kit from like the adventure cycling that has the maps and suggested way stations along the line. Um, you could do what I did. The thing is that you would be so much less efficient if you had to stop and like study a map. Um, I'm sure that there are other people who have ridden actually further than I did, maybe not in a year, but they also didn't, nec- they also didn't have so many specific stops that they needed to make. Like no other cyclist was like, I have to structure my day around red cockaded woodpecker. And like, <laughs> after that, I have to figure out where I can, where I can grab redheaded woodpecker and white ibis and brownheaded nuthatch. Like other people have ridden more, but they, they can just wander and it doesn't really matter exactly what path they take. Whereas I still had these very specific guideposts I had to hit. So you, I could have done it with a paper map, but I would have been much more pressed for time and probably gotten lost more than I did had I had to every five miles take out the paper map, especially in urban and suburban environments. So it would have been, for lack of a better word, it would have been a pain in the ass. It would have been doable, but a pain in the ass. And it would have sacrificed birds to have to do it. So a related question. I'm curious how you strung together your route. How did you choose birding sites? Were you researching on eBird or what were your sources? I mean, what were you aiming for on a given day? 
Yeah, so... You're on some highway, well, the birding site may be another 20 miles off on some secondary road, right? Right, and so I think that this was, this was the real challenge, was how to... How to the goal is the goal is obvious when you're on a bike. It's minimize the riding, maximize the species. So, I globally I kind of realized that there were these important areas. Like I had to hit South Florida, uh, and I could South Florida can be hit at any time of the year. Certainly, there are species like Antillean nighthawk that you're not going to get unless you're there from April until August, right? But you can't plan your year around one species. So Florida can be hit any time. Um, I had to hit the Texas coast in the spring to get the eastern migrants, which meant I'd have to hit California in the fall to get the western migrants. Rocky Mountains would be best done in the summer when it's warm. Arizona's best done sometime in the summer. So I kind of had to like piece the piece the route together that way. But even once I got kind of the global, as you might call it, the macro route, like you just have to break it down piecemeal. I, I liken a, a big year to like a juggling act that you have Every bird is like is represented by a ball, and at the outset you're just juggling like seven hundred balls, or in my case about six hundred. And every one that you get, you can then like remove the corresponding ball from the act, and then put that much more focus, which is still only incremental with each ball on on those which remain. Um, and so, I couldn't get everything all at once, and because I was moving around the country so slowly, I, I knew that I'd be biking. Like when I left the Northeast, I'd be biking out of range for things like common eider and dove key and northern shrike and snowy owl so like i had to put my focus on those species and so really what it came down to is that and then when i was in florida i'd have to focus on things like white-winged parakeet which was then still relatively gettable it's really rare down there now um and whatever else is down there spot-breasted oriole the introduced species snail kite so what it comes down to is that i realized that the year boiled down to about 80 species and in, if mm. I, if in searching for those 80 spread across these kind of like geographies that would hold a disproportionate percentage of those 80s, I would collect the other 500 plus. Um, the Rocky Mountains were the hardest because, I mean, the Texas coast is the easiest, right? Because you go to Sabine what? Woods and you go to uh, High Island and you go to Anahuac and you go to Bolivar. Everything is like right there. And if you spend, if you spend two weeks there, you're going to see like upwards of, maybe even 300 species of birds, like right in that one area. Whereas the Mountain West, like there's no one area that you can go to get like sage grouse and, and black swift right. and gray crowned rosy finch. Like rosy it's, finch, it, yeah. it's like, necess- it's ne- it, right. It's like one at a time. And so the Mountain West provided like uh, a unique set of challenges because it was like, it wasn't so much a destination as it was like a, a, a 10 week grind. Whereas like Southeastern Arizona, once I got there, like all the dominoes fell very quickly, like within two weeks, like I had everything that I was going to get from like when I crossed the state line on Arizona, on May 15th to like when I left on May 30th or something, like I got everything in those two weeks and I didn't have to do that much riding in between the birds. Like, so it was, it was really, I realized that you have to put the focus onto about 70 or 80 core species and worry about getting those. And like all the other puzzle pieces would fall into place as I searched for those. I'm still curious on a given day. Okay, tomorrow yeah. I need to drive from X uh, Greensboro, South Carolina to whatever. Oh, got Asheville. it. Yeah, yeah. How are you choosing birding locations along the way in that Yeah, day? so I was using eBird at that stage. Um uh, and this is one of the reasons that I 
I am now such a an avowed eBird user is that I I took and took and took from eBird in 2014 without contributing at all, and now I I love contributing and I love putting GPS points and I love putting exact details of where people should park their cars and I want to make it as easy as possible for people to find whatever interesting birds that I find now. Uh, but since I just took in 2014. But I did, I did end up using a lot of eBird of saying like, okay, today's goal is King Rail. Where can I ride to find King Rail? Well, it seems like if I'm right next to the coast, there seems to be a max, uh, a mix of Clapper and King. But if I get further and further inland, then I don't have to worry about like separating the two of them. Like everything seems to be King by the time I get 20 miles inland. So let me take this road and that'll get me to an area where it's like, Everything appears to be King Rail as far as eBird is is communicating to me. Um, yeah, okay. But there there was a lot of that. The other thing is that a lot of local people, like once people got wind of, of this adventure, people were bending over backwards to help me. And usually when I was riding through a given area, I'd have a handful of targets. And they're like, ooh, I know a place that we can go to get this. And they'd either come out with me and meet me, on their, meet me in their car and help me find something. Some people would even bike, which is really cool. Uh, so I got a lot of help along the way. I think that that's pretty – most big-year birders get at least some amount of help. And I think that people were really eager to help me because of the fact – that I was on a bike. I think that they saw that there was a huge difference between me riding a hundred miles on my bike and somebody else driving a hundred miles in their car. And I think that even some people who might be a little, a little bit kind of jaded on, on big years were willing to help me because of my mode of transportation. And the fact that my life was on the line on a lot of days. Definitely. I mean, it just, demands some kind of respect it's just like wow this guy's serious I, I can see that right like this this person this person is just kind of going above and beyond what is normally done this person must really want to see this bird <laughs> badly <laughs> you know yeah and that's not to say that big ear birders don't it's just like petroleum powered big ear birders like i'll like i, I have to I'll never begrudge anybody doing a, a petroleum-powered big year. People can spend as much or as little as they want. Like they're wonderful adventures. I realize that I understand why the community takes to them and follows them. It just wasn't my thing. I needed I needed something different. And do I follow big years now? Kinda, but I I don't I don't I don't get super invested in them. So it's just a different way of looking at things. It would have been quite different. You know, we referenced Nav smartphones. It also would have been quite different to do this big year pre-eBird. Very uh, different. You would have been pouring through site guides, right? right? Like ABA lane, bird lane guides. guides, right? And then exactly, how do you? You know, you wouldn't have been able to carry twenty different local, you know, state site guides. So how would you? You almost would have to extract that information and have some kind of like summary of it in a notebook or something I, or know. or i mean you one way you could do it is just have you could have things shipped like you could trade out like i had to trade right. out i had to trade out clothing like as i left the northeast and i had to had to send back my winter boots and send back my coats and send back my insulating layers to to my parents house in philadelphia i'd have to swap out bird guides back in the day i'd have to get the lean guide to florida and when I was out of Florida. I'd have to ship that somewhere and then get my hands on the Gulf Coast one and then get the Arizona one when I got there. So, yeah, I mean, the technology definitely definitely made it easier. Um, 
So it's, I mean, there's always been this idea of somebody doing, I mean, and I think this is what Wild America was, the Roger Tory Peterson trip was, they weren't chasing rarities around, you know? I think that there's something to be said for like a no, a no rarities alert figure. Like, I'm just going right. to go birding. Like, I think that mine has basically been the closest thing to that because I was so limited in what I could chase. Because couldn't I couldn't chase much. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like, I couldn't, I couldn't pick up the pen and move somewhere far away. Like, once I drew the trace out, I had to follow it. But um, this idea of, like, big ear birding isn't birding. Let's, let's be honest. It's, it's bounty hunting. Um, <laughs> and so and, – and other people have done the legwork before – the big ear birder even gets into motion to go chase species X. I mean, a lot of that was true on my bike too. Like people found a lot of birds ahead of me that I, I was then able to collect. But this idea that, and I think it's kind of gotten lost. It's just like, I'm just going to go birding for a year and see what I see and not worry about what's being seen in areas where I'm not. Like, I think that we as a community have kind of have lost a little bit of that. It would be interesting for somebody to, to do that and to say, I'm just, I'm just going to go birding and I'm not going to pay attention to, species total and I'm not going to pay attention to rare bird alerts and, and see see what that looks like once that project is undertaken. Hell, maybe I'll be the person who does that. <laughs> Next challenge. Next yeah. chapter. Yeah, I know. I hear you. It's, it is interesting. I was just in Costa Rica and there is so much e-burning in Costa Rica. There can be 8,000 checklists submitted for one trail. So you can look through that data and know down to a high degree of precision how likely you are to see each bird you can uh -huh. list out your potential targets whatever those are among those it's almost a foregone conclusion in terms of the number of them you might find you don't maybe know which exact ones but there's something really cool about that but then there's also something it's it's very different for sure than just going birding and huh, yeah what's out here let's explore this habitat and I think that this is something that you see even – it's so funny where this, is, this discussion is going now. But like this is – eBird is such an awesome program. But at the same time, it, it also funnels people towards hotspots which are already heavily birded. In some respects, like what we need is, is more even data coverage and people to be like, where isn't there a hotspot? Or right. where it hasn't been birded recently and I'm going to go there and I'm going to bird on my own. But uh, there's this... Right. There e might be some of that. It might have that as a sort of secondary effect, but probably the strongest effect is going to be, yep, is people, I'm in South Texas, I'm going to go to Benson. Right, and rightly so. I mean, a lot of these places are wonderful, uh, but it's... And it's the Patagonia picnic table effect everywhere where you have, as soon as some rare birds are found, then more people come and more rare birds are found. Uh, but I think that, I mean, I suffer from this as well. I think that we all have a, a little bit of this, of this FOMO of being the one person who doesn't see the, the really cool bird that somebody else found. Um, but I think that it's the same thing, like the, the competition that eBird fuels among the, the top 100 for any geography year over year, like... I don't think that's healthy, but at the same time, it's motivating people to get out and submit checklists and and do the thing they love, which is birding, uh, and more importantly, kind of generate more birding data for eBird. So everything comes with good and bad, and there's no there's no absolute judgment on it. Just like people, right? There's there's things about my adventure that are really great, and there's other things that are not so hot, and there's just there's good and bad in everything. Right. Every new technology there are ways it can lead to abuse and maybe the degradation of some kind of previous enjoyment, but there's ways in which it can enhance totally or, or even just create whole new spheres of, and yeah, I think Ebert is, is in that vein. Like mm -hmm. 
I think we could easily do a whole podcast about eBird. Um, maybe we'll do that another day. But yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> let me get back to the, the questions about this, this big year. I'm still interested about your process of birding. So like, let's say you're driving, you're covering this uh, 60 miles between two towns in the Carolinas, and you have a few target birds. It's really hard to bird from a bike. I did a lot of it when I was a kid. You know, your your hands are pretty much occupied. It's hard to use bins. It's hard, a little bit hard to hear. So how do you do, do you get to an area, like say in some national forest, and park your bike yeah. and walk? Do you, and then how about all your stuff? I mean, were you constantly worried about your stuff? Do you have to hide your bike somewhere or lock it yes. up? Yes. Yes to all those questions. So okay. I, I think that the mistake that people make when they when they're like people often ask me to lead bike birding field trips, and I'm like, bike birding field trip doesn't really work because what happens is is that people want to ride ten feet and they're like, oh, there's a bird, and then they want to stop, and then we identify it as a meadowlark, and then we get back on the bike and we ride. Somebody's like, oh, there's a there's a there's a heron. Let's stop, and that's twenty feet later. Like. It doesn't, the bike doesn't work as a substitute for, for walking. It works as a substitute for driving. And mm-hmm. so I didn't do a lot of like stopping while I was riding. The other thing is that if you're riding a hundred miles, you want to get those hundred miles done. So it was, it was a lot of like, this is the area that I need to get to, to find this specific bird. And ideally in terms of like the day, the ideal scenario is that you would ride in the morning because there's less wind in the morning and there is, it's usually cooler. And so what you want to do is you want to ride to the area and then hopefully you get there ahead of schedule and you have some time that afternoon to look for Scott's Oriole, for instance, in, in some southwestern park. And then if you get it that afternoon, then you're like, yes, I can get out of here. I can ride early tomorrow morning when it's cool. And if you miss it on that like arrival afternoon, then you know that I have the morning tomorrow, which is going to be the best birding part of the day, to then look for it again. And then if I get it, I can continue on. Um, so that's a lot of it is that it's really like riding to an area. And then the best scenario is that you can stay like within a few miles of where you want to bird the following day. And on the coasts, that was easy because there were so many people in motels and things like that. As you got into the kind of American West, that became harder. And so it would be great to be able to ride to my host's house or ride to my motel. I get in at two o'clock. I can drop off all of my crap and then I can go back out like later in the afternoon uh, at the end of the day to do a few hours of birding. Like in the summer, I could stay out till nine o'clock, especially in the Rockies and Washington when it was light, really late. So I wouldn't have to worry about the about what to do with my quote unquote stuff uh, when I'd have to ride to a birding location. Uh, and then like if I had to ride 30 miles and then my lodging was another 30 miles beyond that and I had to bird in the middle, that's when it became dicey because I'd have to, I would have to hide my bike and I would have to take my panniers off my bike and like put them into a bush and then make sure that like nobody could see that from the parking area or from the trail. Like the bike I could lock up in the parking lot, but the panniers, somebody could just come along and lift off the bike. Like I didn't carry 20 feet of locking cable with me to lock everything up. I just had like a horseshoe lock. So yeah, I had to hide, constantly hide my stuff, uh, my belongings when I couldn't unload it near a birding location. That was the ideal scenario. It was like, if I could, if I was looking for species X that I could ride to a house, it's next to the marsh where species X lives. And I could like bird that without my stuff the arrival afternoon and the following morning. But the calculation changes then as you as you find things, if you find things along the road that you then had thought about looking for later, you can change your travel plans. And 
vice versa. If you go to a spot to, to look for species X and you don't find it there, it's then like, wow, what, what do I do? Do I invest more time here or do I move to another spot? Um, so there's this constant like balance of, of stay or go or knowing when to fold because the, the cost in the, on the bike is so much higher than in the car and the car, same thing with lodging. Like if, if you, if you drive into a, into, into Fort Stockton in central Texas and all the motels are sold out because there's some rock convention, for instance, or like there's a flute convention, you just get in your car and you drive the additional hour and 10 minutes right. to Van Horn, like, and you get a motel room there. On the bike, I don't have that option. Like I had to have everything lined up ahead of time. So it was funny because I had to have my lodging being like, I'm either going to come today or tomorrow. Uh, and especially when I was staying with people and, and be flexible based on what I found along the way. But like, I, I couldn't say I'm going, like looking more than two nights out was pointless because if the wind kicks up, I'm not making it. If I get a bunch of flat tires, I'm not making it. If I pull a muscle, I'm not making it. Like if I don't find a bird, I'm not making it. So I had to have like this f flexible structure to everything that I did, birding, lodging, eating included, because I just didn't know how far I could get on any given day. Whereas a car, you just get in and turn the key. You're going to get there. It's no mystery, you know? So you referenced uh, the potential for injury, you know, yeah. pulling a muscle or whatever, just, you know, severe cramps. You didn't go a ton into that in the book. And I'm just curious how that worked. Did you do a lot to condition and get ready for this big year? Did you have routines along the way that kept you healthy? Did you stretch? Did you take nutritional supplements or like, how did you keep your body going? Because I did the math. 50 miles a day. Yeah. Every single exactly. day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for most people, you do that. If I do that tomorrow, I'm going to be crushed <laughs> for like four days. And I'm, I'm in okay shape, but uh -huh. I'm not in bicycle shape. I mean, yeah. that is, and just sustaining that for a year is an immense physical undertaking. So, uh, the, the answer is that I, once I got sober uh, at age 30, I started running again a couple of years after that. And so uh, I referenced in the book that I was an active runner in the years when I conceived this trip. So I, I knew that if I stepped out the door on any given day and, and somebody said, I need you to run 10 miles and I need you to run 10 miles in an hour and 15 minutes or hour and 20 minutes. I need you to do that. I know that I could meet that challenge on any given day. And so my calculus was if I can run 10 miles on demand any given day that somebody asks me, I can bike 50 on any given day if somebody asks me. And so I had a pre-established fitness and I was, a, I was a runner in high school. I ran the mile in four minutes and 30 seconds when I was in high school. So I knew that in terms of, of fitness that I could get back I've always had great endurance. I've known that I could run two miles in under 10 minutes when I was in high school. Granted, I smoked a lot of cigarettes, a lot of weed, and a lot of other things in the intervening time between high school and when I took off on this trip. But I knew that fundamentally that the endurance wouldn't be an issue. The other thing is that you didn't, it's not like a marathon where you need to train for six months and then you have one day. It was quite the opposite here where I said, I don't want to do too much training ahead of time. Like I want to have a baseline, but I don't want to go crazy ahead of a January one departure because I then have 365 days that I, that I have to maintain uh, that right. level of intensity and fitness. So a lot of it was 
I need to use the beginning part of the year as a way of building my fitness. And I told, I said in the book that I had, I had really bad tendonitis. I actually did a bit too much training in like August, September, and then October, November, I developed tendonitis in my knees. And so I had to dial back what I was doing. Uh, so I, I think that the fact that the days were short at the beginning in terms of uh, riding, uh, and a lot of that was because of the weather. Like it was so cold that I couldn't be outside for the entire day like I could later in the year. So the fact that I started in the Northeast imposed some structure and some discipline on me. Uh, and I, there were obviously a lot of birds to find at the outset. So there wasn't a, a hu- there weren't huge miles between new species. Uh, so I kind of knew that there was some, like the, the, the nature of the adventure would impose some amount of structure and pace and, and governance on, on my riding at the beginning. Uh, but yeah, I got lucky in the fact that I didn't, I didn't miss a day the entire year to sickness or to injury. I missed days to fatigue when I had particularly challenging rides and I physically couldn't move the following day. Uh, but I stayed really, really healthy through the entire year. I don't think I might've had a cold here or there, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have any appreciable sickness. I didn't, I didn't pull any muscles, uh, even though I was hit by a car and hit once and nearly flattened five or six other times. Like I, I escaped that episode without, without serious injury. Uh, so I, I got really lucky, but also I, I understood that there needed to be some amount of pace to the project because if I had gone crazy and trained really hard for the six months, like leading up to my departure, I would have burned out. And the fact that I just mm. kept, I kept getting stronger and stronger as the year went on. And if you like, when I, when I give a talk, I show the averages of like, of my, of my daily rides by month. And you can just see that like the average keeps going up and up and up. And I, you can see that as a reader that I, then I explain how I underestimated my cycling capacity. And I started like expanding my route and taking more risks and riding further for individual birds. So, but the fitness was, I knew it would be there. It was a question of, of how would I manage it so that I didn't burn out by the end of the year. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. A related question, how did you handle food? You, you mentioned a few things in the book, which was mostly fast food. Right. And I'm thinking of like the food desert that is most of America. You right. know, if you're in some big cities or in California, you can get really good food if you have money. But man, it is, I just struggle so much to get decent, healthy food in most of the states. And just having a healthy enough diet to maintain what you were doing seems like it must have been a huge challenge. You know that scene at the end of Back to the Future when Doc Brown like lands the the DeLorean in Marty McFly's driveway and he's hanging out with Jennifer and he's got the like food processor attached where the flux capacitor was and he's like <laughs> yep. pouring in stale beer and putting in pizza crusts. Like that was both my life in my twenties and my life on the bicycle. So when I was, <laughs> when I was partying, it didn't matter what I put into my system. I always survived. Like whether it was cocaine, methamphetamine, uh, alcohol shots, like I just, my body is kind of indestructible that way. And that was proven again, once I was on the bicycle, because all I ate was bad food. I shouldn't say all I ate. I ate majority bad food. I ate, probably had little choice for I didn't, of your as you journey. Said, right on the coast. And the other thing is, is it. I had a budget and my budget was way lower than a lot of these folks who were like flying around. And so I, I ate fast food nonstop. I, ate, I was looking for the most calories for the least amount of money. And if those were bad calories, I didn't care. 
Um, there were days when I would wake up and eat five waffles for breakfast at the motel where I stayed. And then I'd ride for an hour, ride for a couple of hours and eat a king size Kit Kat, ride for a few more hours, eat two Whoppers and milkshake and a <laughs> thing of fries, ride for a few more hours past a Dairy Queen, have a large peanut butter blizzard, get into town, only place in town's a Little Caesars, eat a large pizza and then eat a pint of ice, eat a pint of Bluebell. And so I started the trip at 188 pounds, something like that. And I finished at 171. So I lost 17 pounds eating just crap. The best is when I stayed with people, especially with other cyclists that I met online and they would roll out the red carpet and make me real food like real oatmeal for breakfast. Uh, they'd make these spreads uh, for dinner that had tons of vegetables. I was, I was a meat eater then. I've since gone vegetarian, uh, completely for environmental and animal rights reasons. But like that year, I ate whatever was put in front of me. Um, so when people like rolled out these big spreads for me, it was really sweet. Uh, the other consideration is one that we touched on a minute ago was kind of the security of my stuff is that I, I didn't have the luxury of being able to lock my bike up and go into, into what I would call a real sit down restaurant with my right. scope and my bags and all my crap. Right. Yeah. right? I so I had, that. I had to eat at fast food restaurants because I could put the bike on the window, like right outside my table and keep an eye on it. Um, you ever and go through the drive-throughs in your bike? No, I didn't. I didn't. I wasn't forced to do that, uh, at all on this trip. Thank God. Uh, but like, this is, this was the reality is that, I mean, I ate a lot of Subway, uh, I ate a lot of Chipotle, I ate a ton of Burger King, McDonald's, Domino's, like you name it. Like uh, I couldn't bring myself to do Arby's. That was like the Arby's and Kentucky fried chicken, were, like the two places I couldn't do, but you just ate what was there. And in a lot of America, that's all that there is there, especially along like I-10 when I was riding through Texas and New Mexico, um. I did have some really good Mexican, like New Mexican style food in Mexico, in New Mexico, which was good. And I tried to eat some local cuisine when I could, like when I was in New Orleans. But I mean, it, when you're on a shoestring budget, like, I mean, and this is before all the recent inflation and things like I could go into McDonald's and eat, eat and get full for six bucks. Like you could get right. four dollar cheeseburgers. I'd have a glass of water or whatever. And then a dollar fries and bam, there's your like twenty five hundred calories or <laughs> Whatever the hell it is, right? Uh, so yeah, food, food was. It was really awesome when I could get a real meal when somebody cooked for me. That was the best. Did you? I mean, were you sort of longing for like whole foods, or were, is your system just bigger? <laughs> like you, you can just keep feeling on that stuff and not really miss. I mean, I want. I wanted real food, but at the same time, I, I just. I mean, the flip side of it was that I have a sweet tooth. Since getting sober, like sugar is, since there's so much sugar in booze, like I, I didn't realize that I had kind of like drowned mm. my sweet tooth. But once I got sober, I was like, oh my God, cookies and candy. So it was awesome being able to be like, you know what? I stopped for ice cream earlier today, but I'm going to stop again because it's <laughs> not going to matter. It, it's, I'm not going to gain any weight. Uh, right. Certain privileges so, of riding right. average 50 miles a day. Right. And then like, walking around and then. Right. And staying up late, like the other thing is that like in the Northeast, people discount like the act of staying warm uh, for right. like if you're standing on a jetty for two or three hours, it, it takes energy to do that. Oh, um, massive. Yeah. So, right. And most people duck out of their house, go birding for an hour or two and then come back into the warm house. But right. you're out in it all day. Right. Exactly. So the Northeast was a, was a particular challenge in that respect. But yeah, food, food is something like anything else I had to manage and I had to think about. And water was another problem, like in the Southeast, Southwest rather, where it gets dry and hot like i had to if i'm looking at the map like again if you just get in your car you just start driving you have a gallon of water in the back you don't think about it and if you run out of water it's like oh, i'll just drive to the next town but 
I had to, like in certain areas of the country, look at the map and say, where can I get food? Where can I get water? And then say, okay, I need to call this place ahead of time because if I can't get food and I can't get water there, I'm not going to have the ability to ride. I'm not going to have the, the, basically the fuel to ride to the next place that I can get fuel. Um, so I had to do so much research in terms of knowing what was open, what places had, were still in business, what places had gone out of business. Like logistically, the logistics of this were as hard as the birding of the biking. It, it was just, I had to know if I was riding on a gravel road, if I was riding on a paved road or a dirt road. Well, when was the last time it rained? Did it rain two days before? Because if it rained sprinkled two days before, riding a dirt road wouldn't be a problem. If it rained three days before and it rained quarter of an inch, it wouldn't be a problem. But if it rained two inches three days before I was to ride it, it would be a problem because the road would turn to mud as soon as I put my bike on it. And so I had to know not only weather like ahead of me, but what weather behind me or, or like in the area to which I was riding, what the weather had done for the three days before I got there to know what road conditions look like. So I had to look at past weather and satellite imagery of my routes when I wasn't on main road to know if any of those roads were dirt. And like, were they going through low-lying areas? Were they, was a bridge potentially, or like if they were going through a really low-lying area, was there potential for a flood? And I, if it had rained the night before, if I couldn't get through there, like how long a detour would that be? And if the detour was 50 miles, would it just be better to ride a longer route so that I didn't have to backtrack to ride the longer route? So there was all this like constant weighing of, of pluses and minuses, which in your car, you just don't even think about. It doesn't right. matter. There's, there's no thinking. You get in, you turn the car and you drive. That's why cars are awesome, you know? <laughs> They're easy. Very convenient sometimes, that's yeah. for sure. I'm curious, when you ended your big year, did you just collapse for like two months and just, you know, because I often find even, let's say I'm guiding for yeah. four, five, six weeks in a row, I can maintain a very high level of energy and not even sleep that much. I, mm -hmm. Sleep is quite key, but there is always a price to pay when that intense period is over. Was it like that for you at the end of your big year? Uh, a little bit. I wanted absolutely nothing to do with a bicycle ever again <laughs> in my entire life when I got off. my I, It wasn't until November when I was like, my body really started to break down. Some of that was psychological because I was then riding over the same ground that I had ridden earlier in the year as I recrossed the desert southwest and went back to central Texas. So mentally, I was like, oh my God, I'm not getting any new birds. It's miserable. It's boring. Blah, blah. The weather sucks. Um, so there was there was that aspect of of the redundant of like my body breaking down, getting bored at the end of the year because there were so so few birds. Uh, so when I got off the bike at the end, I was like, I don't want anything to do with the bicycle ever again. Uh, and I didn't have to confront, I didn't have to actually think about that decision because a I moved back to the northeast and there was the northeast was under about five feet of snow when I when I got back to Boston and New York. Uh, the second thing that happened, and I talk about this in the in the acknowledgments, actually. Yeah, in the acknowledgement section of the book, I think is, or the postscript or whatever the heck, the epilogue or whatever it is, that I ended up moving to LA uh, soon after getting off of the bicycle, basically because Sonia's mom got sick and we needed to be there for her family. And LA is not a place that I wanted to ride a bike. Uh, so I didn't ride for two years after the big year. It wasn't until we moved to the Bay Area in 2017 that I, that I got back on the bike and wanted to ride again. Uh, the big, the biggest thing I had to worry about actually when I got off the bike was not not eating the way that I was eating when I was riding around. So I put on a right. I put on a bunch of weight really fast because I was used to being able to look. Yeah, I'll eat ten cookies today. Who cares? But I 
I originally wanted nothing to do with the bike. And now that I'm, uh, and since 2017, like after those two years when I was in LA, when I didn't only not want anything to do with it, but LA kind of prevented it. Uh, I, I'm just as addicted to the bike now. I'm probably more addicted to the bike now than it even was on my big year. Cause now I, I have the choice to like ride it or not. Mm-hmm. Whereas on the big year, I, if the day sucked and it was pouring rain and it was like rain is manageable and cold is manageable, but cold rain is the worst. Like riding in 38 degree temperatures is awful when it's raining. Um, so now I have the choice of, oh, the weather sucks. I'm not going to ride my bike today. Whereas on the big year, I had to ride every day, no matter what happened. I didn't have the choice. You're a scientist or you're a scientist by training. Did you ever calculate the caloric requirements of what you were doing? No, I mean, it would be interesting to know that. Um, I mean, I, I, I mean, given, I mean, I could sit down and figure out from like an average day what I was eating. I mean, I, I had to have been eating like six or 7,000 calories a day. I think Olympic, yeah, it sounds like it. I think Olympic athletes like Michael Phelps or whatnot eat, or, eat nine or 10. He's a bigger dude than I am to start with. Uh, but I mean, I just, no matter what I ate, the weight came off and I was just always hungry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> always wanting to eat. Yeah. Well, one last question about the kind of the nitty gritty of yeah, the year. Yeah. Looking back, are there any strategic errors that you regret? Do you, you know, do you wish you'd done something different? And then related question, if you were going to do it again, would you try a different route? Would you do the same route? I mean, maybe for the sake of novelty, you'd want to do something different. But if somebody else was trying to break your record, which is fairly unlikely to happen, I think, but you know, would there be a different route to try? So this is I, like as a I, the root design for me was was an optimization problem at the end of the day. So if in fact there is a single best route to ride, and if in fact I was the person who rode that, then what I realized is that there's a huge cachet to being the first person to do this. Um, in a normal big year, there's no route. Like yeah, there's certain areas you have to go, but you're basically waiting by the phone for people to find birds, and then you fly right. to them. So there's no, there's no real strategy. Again, it's just how much money you have and whether you can afford to chase everything that gets phoned in. So I, I gave, I was like, you know what? Like I, since nobody's done this before, I got to give this a lot of thought. And so I gave it a ton of thought. And after riding it, I think I rode the single best route that a person could hope to ride. I don't oh, think, I don't think if I was to do this again, I would do anything from the macro perspective different. Uh, what right. I'm, what I might do, for instance, is I spent, a day in Boston to secure lesser blackbacked gull. And so I, I kind of was like, okay, there's one along the route. I'll spend tonight in Boston. I'll allocate the whole day to get lesser blackbacked gull. I'll spend the night at the same place. And then I will continue south from Boston. And then I ran into 25 lesser blackback gulls or like 40 lesser blackback gulls on Belusia shores in Florida where they're just every winter there's dozens of them. And I hadn't done enough birding in Florida to know that. So I could have saved myself a day there. Gray Vireo is the same thing. I allocated a couple of days to look for Gray Vireo and then heard several Gray Vireos just singing along the road as I was riding. So there were a bunch of species into which I pushed time, like dedicated time that I could have uh, observed, heard, seen, whatever you want to say, uh, just uh, kind of along the way without dedicated effort. So uh, from a micro perspective, I would have changed that aspect. From a macro perspective, I wouldn't have changed much. Overall uh, route. Yeah. I mean, there were there were a couple of and there were a couple of strategic decisions I made along the way, like leaving the Texas coast a few days early with a few birds still on the table. Like I hadn't seen black-billed cuckoo, I hadn't seen yellow-bellied flycatcher, and I hadn't seen morning warbler. The cuckoo is just 
kind of few and far between. The other two are among the two latest migrants to come through. Uh, and so it was really difficult to leave those three birds because I knew that once I left the Texas coast, I had no chance at them. But every single bird that I looked for after leaving the Texas coast, I, I got. And I got on, on what I feel like was a pretty expedited timetable and had given that basically I accrued an essentially a perfect record, all the rarities that I chased included, had I left even a day later with one, two, or maybe even three of those species, the dominoes from there would not have, could not have fallen any better than they did. So I necessarily would have sacrificed something on the, on the back end, kind of in the following six months or following nine, or I guess eight months after that. Um, I don't think if I did this again, knowing what I know now, and even with Big years just generally get easier because there's more people birding. This is why it's kind of apples to oranges to compare a big year from now to 10 years ago because there's so many more people birding and finding more rarities now. But I don't think even given that bump that if I were to do this again in 2024, for instance, which would be 10 years after uh, my original ride, that I would be able to, to beat my record I, or my number. I don't like to look at it as a record. I like to look at it as my number because so many things went right from yeah. like not getting injured, not getting sick, not getting hit. Uh, well, I, your body's I, uh, ability to metabolize fast food probably has not improved in the last <laughs> 10 years either. So True, very true. Um, and this is the other thing is that like as, as readers will see, like I could beat my body is, is, is just different. I could put stuff into it that would kill the average human being. Uh, I would put stuff into my body on the average Tuesday night that would kill the average human being. Um, when I was in my party days, it's like when you pluck somebody from sea level and put them in on Everest, they would die in like 10 minutes. That would be like <laughs> most people, that would be most people if they tried to do what I did to myself on an average Tuesday, let alone like a weekend when I was in my, when I was in my kind of drinking and drug phase, but my body just like, I joke with people, I don't explicitly say it in the book, but it's funny because it, when I was drinking, I'd beat the hell out of myself at night and kind of recover during the day, whereas the bicycle was the opposite. I beat the hell out of myself <laughs> during the day and recovered at night. <laughs> well, Dorian, as often happens, we've been chatting for over an hour now. I still have a lot more questions. Um, offline, I asked Dorian if he's okay to continue this podcast, and he's agreed. So the good news is that we're going to record a second podcast, which we'll release next week. So tune in for part two of my chat with uh, with Dorian. I've really enjoyed this, Dorian. I appreciate all the details and uh, these sort of careful answers to the questions. Really absolutely fascinating big year, fascinating process. Like the more I think about it, just the more interesting I find it just strategically and logistically. Well, thank you. I mean, it's, it's really, you're a smart dude. And I think that these are the kind of questions and, and insights that I, that I want people to have. Unfortunately, there are, as you said, like, it would be awesome to have all of this detail in the book, but in some ways it, it would bog the narrative down a little bit. Yeah. And so like, I love kind of filling people in on, on these kind of missing pieces. And, and it's awesome when readers are, are engaged enough with the narrative that they're like, there's a piece here that, that, I, that is kind of peaking, peaking a question or peaking an interest. So I love filling in those gaps that just for whatever reason, some, maybe my own forgetfulness and probably more due to editing that were just chopped out because they want to keep the, the overarching emotional story going. But filling in all these like nitty gritty bits is a lot of fun really fun yeah appreciate it dorian um we always close out with a natural sound 
So the bird on the cover of your book is a snowy owl, which that was one of your, was that your first bird? First bird in the yeah, dark on January epic. 1. <laughs> so it does not have a particularly glorious vocalization, but in honor of Dorian's big year, we're going to close out with a, a, a snowy owl and we'll, we'll continue our discussion next week. So many thanks, Dorian, and we'll chat again soon. Cheers. Awesome to be here. Thanks for the opportunity, Ken. Woo!